Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, friend. This season of Foul Play is going to be different. If you've been a listener for a long time, you might remember Wendy from helping me narrate the map season. She has a British accent, if that helps ring a bell. The first time I met Wendy was at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee. It was 2018, and Gemma Hoskins and I was there to speak about the Netflix series The Keepers. In a huge room full of hundreds of people, there was a British lady with bright red hair sitting in the middle of the front row. Later, when she came up to me, she introduced herself as Wendy, and immediately we became friends. In time, Wendy started to help manage the foul play social media accounts, and that eventually led into her helping me work on cases. I remember the first time we thought, maybe she could give writing a script a chance. After all, I told her, if I could do it, anyone could. And boy, did she turn out to be one hell of a scriptwriter. Together, Wendy and I have used storytelling and podcasting to weave together many crime stories. But for this story, on this season, I'm going to let her take the wheel and weave it herself. Wendy, I'm proud of you. And I always knew the day would come when you'd be ready to share this story. Listener, I hope you don't mind if I take a seat next to you on this one as we hear the story together. Are you hoping I die so that you can use the insurance money to sort out your mess? These words were scribbled on a scrap of paper that was found by police as they searched the house of Sharon Birchwood for clues following her murder. Words that sent a chill down the spine of those that read them. Did Sharon have a premonition? Did Sharon know what was to come? Did Sharon spend her final days scared for her life? Mark Twain once said, Truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. The murder of Sharon Birchwood on the 4th of December 2007 definitely falls into this category. There are more twists and turns than you could ever imagine, but I know them all to be true. How? Because Sharon was my aunt, and this is her story.
Welcome to Foul Play's new series, My Aunt and the Hitman. I'm your host, Wendy C, and this is episode one, Beyond the Grave. As a true crime writer, researcher and podcaster, I've interviewed many family members and friends of victims of murder. It's never easy. You can see the pain in their eyes as they tell you their story. That faraway look as they remember the good times, and the glistening in their eyes and the break in their voice as they try to hold back the tears. I know how they feel. Seeing my nan crushed by the emotional load that her daughter's murder brought on her broke my heart. No parent should ever have to bury their child. No parent should ever have to go through what my nan went through. Every victim matters. Every victim has a family. Every victim has a story. This is the story of Sharon Birchwood. I'm going to start by taking you back to Friday the 7th of December 2007. Can you remember what you were doing on that day? Of course you can't. But it's a day that I will remember for the rest of my life. Yeah, I have a dead body here. Harriet's laying in Ashton, please. What's happened there? I don't know, but it looks very nasty. She's been strangled, I think. Do you live in this address, or you've visited this address? Uh, uh, it's my ex-wife. She's got a cord around her neck. Okay, all right, we're going to get police on their way, and obviously we'll get ambulance as well to, to check. Um, it's cold, she's dead. What's her name? Sharon. And her surname? Birchwood. Graham George Birchwood, known to us as George, found Sharon's lifeless body at her home in Ashted, Surrey, and called 999. Surrey police immediately sprung into action and called Detective Chief Inspector Maria Woodall at home with the report of a suspicious death. DCI Woodall wasted no time in assessing the situation and mobilising her major crime team. When I receive the call from the control room, the first thing I check is who's there, what teams are already en route, what actions have they already taken, and have they actually searched the area for a potential suspect. I would have asked for my forensic scene coordinator to go to the crime scene, assess what resources we would need immediately, and also working on for the next few days. DCI Woodall went on to say... I think I got the call late afternoon... And as soon as I got the call, I left my home, which was just outside Guildford, and travelled to Leatherhead to go to Harriet's Lane. Harriet's Lane is a quiet, leafy suburb in the commuter belt of Surrey. It is a very low-crime area, and most of the homes in the Harriet's Lane area are large, individual family homes. The Ashted built-up area's character appraisal from February 2010, described the area as follows. Narrow, enclosed lanes, with extensive planting, creating an almost rural feel that belies location within a built-up area. Some stretches with high hedgerow style, mixed planting to either side, giving a strong sense of enclosure. Torturous lanes, irregular plot sizes, and an informal, almost jumbled, Layout makes for a visually interesting, varied street scene, with new views opening up around every corner. Building styles varied in scale, period and materials, adding to the visual interest of the area 
no particular style dominating. Plenty of trees, including some large garden and street trees, adding to the semi-rural feel. Retired Detective Constable Roger Deacon described the area as... Ashstead is a very affluent part of Surrey. You call it a leafy suburb, which is about right. It's very, very, I won't say posh, but people with a few quid in their pocket could afford to live there. It was a very, very nice area, very quiet. Everybody seemed to know each other and would look out for each other. I know it's an old cliche, but it was a very tight-knit community around there. Sharon's house was not a large detached family home. It was a small, white, detached bungalow with a huge, mainly overgrown garden. It could best be described as one of those houses that you see on a TV programme, where they buy the worst house on the best street, a real doer-upper as an investment. Sharon and George had bought the house over 20 years before, and it had gradually fallen into disrepair. Money was tight, and those little jobs that were left for another day became big jobs that were outside of their budget. But... Sharon loved the house, and she was happy there. While DCI Woodall headed to the house, along with her major crime team, uniformed officers attended the scene. They arrived at 14 Harriet's Lane to find George stood outside, with a mug in his hand, drinking tea. Retired DC Deacon explains how a witness is handled in this situation. The uniform officers that attended the scene originally, who dealt with George, from what I can remember, they basically treated him as a as a witness, as a, you know, a distraught witness, and placed him in the back of a police car to make sure that he was OK, and then eventually took him to Rygate Police Station. And that's where myself and my colleague, we became involved from the major crime point of view. It's hard to imagine what a horrific ordeal this must have been for George, popping round Sharon's house as he did several times a week to check in on her, walking into the house to find her, not only dead, but murdered. Grabbing the phone in shock and dialing 999, shaking and feeling sick as he recounted what he had found, sitting in the back of the police car watching the hustle and bustle of the police as they secured the scene, the crime scene tape being put up and around the entrance of the bungalow. The officers searching the garden in case the suspect was hiding, the radio in the police car springing into life at random moments. And then being driven away to Rygate Police Station as a significant witness. The whole time your mind racing, the horrors of what you'd just seen etched onto the back of your eyelids, so not even closing your eyes gives you a reprieve. It's hard to put yourself in his position and understand just how George would have felt that afternoon. Unless, of course, George already knew what he was going to find when he arrived at the house. In our ongoing journey, dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, 
offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery holding up? Mine's been draining lately, consumed by the darkness of true crime tales. But amidst the shadows, it's crucial to remember to prioritize our mental well-being. Just like unraveling a twisted plot, therapy helps me untangle the knots in my mind. It's about gaining clarity, finding strength, and reclaiming control over your life. Considering therapy, BetterHelp offers a lifeline in the darkness. It's completely online, giving you the freedom to seek help in your own terms. And with a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist who understands your unique struggles. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com foul today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash foul, F-O-U-L. Looking for a new way to unwind after a long day? Say hello to Recess Mood, a healthier alternative that keeps your evenings light and your spirit high. With Recess Mood, you get the pleasure without the guilt. Made with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing adaptogens, Recess Mood lets you relax without alcohol or hangovers. It's just 20 calories per can, has no added sugar, and comes in four delightful flavors like strawberry rose and raspberry lemon. I've tried these myself, and whether I'm chilling at home or need a moment during downtime chaos, Recess Mood is my go-to refreshment. It's truly a guilt-free way to unwind. And now there's something special for all our listeners. You deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane and get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. But we went to Rygate Police Station where Mr. Birchwood, George Birchwood, was being looked after by the two uniform officers who, who took him from the scene and it established that he was a, a diabetic and had to be dealt with, you know, medically and make sure that it was okay. That we were sent there to basically to see a witness, a very crucial, what we call a significant witness. And that's exactly what we did. We went there, um, met Mr. Birchwood, um, had a chat. And it was obvious that he was an ill man because obviously his, his colour of his skin wasn't quite right. And he just, he was ill. We eventually took him to hospital that night to, to be checked up on. And that's where we, we left him that particular night and then went back the next day and started our investigation dealing with, with Mr Birchwood. While George was at Rygate Police Station with DC Deacon, DCI Woodall arrived at the scene. She describes what she first saw. When I got there, the scene had been secured by the uniform teams that were already there. So I went into the, into the crime scene, as it was at that point. I put on my forensic suit and went into the house, went into Sharon's home to have a look at the scene and make a scene assessment as to what I thought could or could have happened. I had to decide then what resources I needed, and then I had to start thinking about my lines of inquiry to identify a suspect. 
When I do a scene assessment, I like to go into the house. Um, I go from room to room, so I make notes. Are the curtains open or drawn? Is the heating on? Is there a post on the doormat? So I then start to look at things I want photographed, things I want seized. So I start to formulate things in my head. Was it a burglary gone wrong? Did it look like Sharon was entertaining somebody before she was murdered? So you're looking at, if, are there cups in the sink? Are there signs of normal life? Was her life interrupted by surprise? Or did somebody act, was somebody actually welcomed into the home and then they took advantage and murdered her? As I recall, there were no curtains on the back windows. It was a massive garden out of the back. Um, so, as I recall, the, the, there was no curtains closed in her bedroom. They were closed in the living room, so whoever was in there had probably done something in the living room, but I remember the living room curtains being drawn. Maria walked through the house assessing everything, looking for clues as to what had happened, making sure the scene was safe and secure, ensuring there was no contamination and that any evidence could be preserved. Sharon's body was found in the bedroom, lying on her side on the bed, covered in a mound of clothes, her face peeping out beneath them. Maria describes what she saw as she entered Sharon's bedroom for the first time. When I went into the bedroom, Sharon was lying down in her bed, but she was completely covered in clothes that had been pulled out of the wardrobe and just laying on top of her. I mean, it was a real mound. It was really obvious that it was deliberate. It wasn't that she'd been cold herself and had pulled some extra clothing over. It was absolutely piled on top of her. And at the time, I sort of looked at it and, and thought of two things. One, the curtains, the back windows were open, so you could have walked around the back of the house and just looked straight into Sharon's bedroom. And also, were they trying to keep the body warm for a bit longer to try and frustrate us finding out what time she died? The crime scene team removed the clothing that was piled on top of Sharon's body and it was then that they could see the full extent of the torture that Sharon had suffered. When we removed all the clothing from on top of her, she was still fully dressed. When I had a closer look, she had both her legs bound at the ankles with duct tape. She had her wrists bound with duct tape and they were pulled up towards her face and then bound around the back of her neck as well. So securing her hands to her face, almost, almost like in a prayer. And then she'd had electrical cable wound around her neck and then at the back there was a, a brass um, magnifying glass that had been used to tighten the cord. My dad, one of Sharon's older brothers, received a call from the police late afternoon on the 7th of December 2007 to inform him that Sharon had died. He then had to tell the family and of course Sharon's mum, my nan. Initially there was confusion Nobody really knew what had happened. How had she died? We were all speculating. We knew she had ill health, so was it that? Had she had an accident or a fall? We had so many questions, nothing made sense. We waited for more information. And then we got the news. We suspect that Sharon was murdered, said the police. How do you even begin to process that news? I can tell you that for me, my mind went into overdrive. Who? Why? What the heck? Did that mean that anybody else was in danger? Was it someone that we knew? But mainly, why? 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 Sharon was one of the kindest, gentlest people you could ever meet. Surely this was a mistake. 
Maybe it was a case of mistaken identity. Who would want to murder Sharon? My 80-year-old nan, Sharon's mum, who lived alone, was understandably scared. How do you even begin to process news like this? Trying to get your head around losing a child under any circumstances must be hard enough. But murder? The family mobilised. We needed to be together. We needed to protect my nan. She needed to feel safe. So everyone congregated at my house. We were assigned two amazing ladies, Bex and Rachel, who were family police liaison officers. They basically moved in from dawn until bedtime and helped us to try to come to terms with what had happened. They answered questions where they could. They passed on information from Maria and her team. They made countless cups of tea and sandwiches. They looked after my other aunt, Lauren, Sharon's sister, who also lived alone. They were amazing. And while chaos was all around us, my husband and I tried to carry on life as normal. We would go to work, trying not to listen to the radio in case the news came on and they talked about Sharon, trying to avoid the shops because every newspaper had her photo on the front cover, trying to pretend like this was all just a bad dream. And then we would come home to a house full of people, to Bex and Rachel sitting quietly in the corner in case we needed them, to the family sitting around trying to make sense of all this nonsense, and to my nan, my poor nan, just sitting in the chair, looking so frail and old, her heart silently breaking as she tried to deal with what was happening. And day by day, more details came out about what exactly had happened to Sharon and the horrific details of her death. But we still didn't know why, and maybe, more importantly, who. Thank you for listening to episode one of My Aunt and the Hitman. In episode two, we learn more about Sharon and the investigation into her murder continues. Sharon was a larger-than-life personality. You knew she was there. She, she had a wonderful laugh, very friendly, very warm, kind person, and welcoming to anybody. The moment you would go, she would invite you in and would love to talk. She just loved to talk to people. And um, I would say she settled in very nicely into Harriet's Lane, very welcomed. This podcast was written and produced by me, Wendy C. It was edited by the amazing team at Foul Play and Arclight Media. Any profits made from this podcast will go to Friends of the Earth and Refuge, both charities that were close to my aunt Sharon's heart. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.